Well, as, as Ray said, uh, I'm not John. Thankfully, John made it here, so I'm not totally, uh, totally out of place. But for those that don't know, this is my first sermon. So welcome. Thank you. Um, I need that. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, I'll ask you to turn to Exodus 14, and you'll have some time to get there. Um, we'll be reading from the end of chapter 13 and verse 21. Uh, but before we read, I want to give us a little bit of context in the story, orient ourselves so that we know what we're about to parachute into as we read a whole chapter of narrative. So Israel has been captive as slave laborers in Egypt for over 400 years, and Pharaoh has refused to let Israel go. And Pharaoh's heart finally gets changed uh, after his own firstborn and every other firstborn in Egypt is killed with the exception of the Israelites. So Pharaoh says, fine, you can go. And after leaving, God gives Israel the sacrament of the Passover meal. They're going to perform that meal on the first day of the year, every year throughout their generations to come. Then God takes Israel and decides he's going to lead them the long way around. We, we kind of know what's happening in the story. We know that Israel is going to end up having to cross the Red Sea, but they don't need to go across the Red Sea. And God says he does that so they won't encounter war with the Philistines on their way to the promised land. So as the reader, we're led to believe the conflict is over. That God has delivered Israel as he promised out of Egypt to enjoy their promised land. So now we'll pick up in chapter 13, verse 21. Please read along with me. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots in Egypt with officers over all of them. And God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. What a narrative. This story strikingly follows the familiar pattern of lament from the Psalms. The psalmist typically will find himself in a scenario where enemies and hopelessness are all around him, and he then cries to the Lord for help. After crying to the Lord for help, he sees or remembers or finds some truth about who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. 
And as a result, his heart is turned rightly toward God. His head is lifted and he can walk forward once again. So I want us to look at this passage inside of that structure as well. So here's the basic form that we'll walk through and you'll see it on the screen. Um, first, the Lord leads Israel to the sea and Pharaoh, the enemy, overtakes Israel and Israel fears Pharaoh and Egypt. Then Moses proclaims this truth that the Lord will fight for them, that the Egyptians that they see today, they will never see again. The Lord gives them a plan to assuage their fears, and then Israel is delivered, Egypt is defeated, and finally we get the answer to uh, the why of all of this is that Israel saw, feared, and believed. This morning, I want you to see that this text is speaking to us today about a simple but absolutely incredible truth. The Lord powerfully saves us so we fear him and believe in his servant. That truth starts in verse 13. It says, for the Egyptians, we might say for the evil or danger or hopelessness, whom you see today, you shall never see again. And Moses goes on, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. That truth that the Lord will fight for us, that he powerfully saves us is true because he wants our hearts to fear and believe in his servant and him. The Lord has that for us this morning. Quick sidebar on fear. Fear of the Lord is a thing that sometimes is difficult to, to process. We, because we think of fearing in terms of of power when it's man's power. And that fear is awful. It hurts us. It leaves a terrible taste in our mouths and it causes us to do all kinds of ridiculous things as a result. The answer, the way we move forward is to fear God, the one who is steady, loving, unwavering, and gracious to his people. A fear of that God gives us confidence to face into anything or anyone else in power with steel in our spine. Nothing can stand against us if we have the Lord. So an attempt to plumb the inexhaustible depths, depths of this truth, I want to move through two questions this morning that the text begs we deal with. The first is, why do we need saving? And then how does the Lord save us? So first, why do we need saving? Clearly, in the story, Israel is facing a real imminent external threat. Pharaoh's coming after them. Every chariot in Egypt, it says, is coming after Israel. So think about just the positioning here that has been set up. Israel has been led the long way around the desert wilderness, and they, they know that. They've been told to camp facing the dead end of the Red Sea. Then they begin to hear the dull roar of every chariot in Egypt. They lift up their eyes and see it, and then they call out in fear. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have led us away to die in the wilderness? This is how we feel, isn't it? We put our trust in Christ. We walk with the Lord. 
And then we find ourselves stuck in a situation where all hope is lost. I find myself here. We cry out to the Lord, how could you have brought me here? Why did you bother delivering me from that sin? What is the point of all these good things that have happened in my life if I'm just going to end up here in this hopelessness? So Israel, understandably, looks at Moses in their situation. Moses, the servant of the Lord, who's set up as their leader, and asks, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? God, of course, has a plan to eradicate the external threat of Pharaoh and his armies, just like God has a plan now to eradicate the sin and death that plagues this world. As Christians, we sit in a very similar position as Israel does in this story. We've been led by the Lord to where we are right now, and we see that external threat all around us. Any number of cultural movements, contrary to the wisdom of Scripture, attempt to sink hooks into us and draw us away from God. We're tempted by sin, enticed by lust and greed and sloth and envy. There are those in our lives who are actively hostile to the gospel and those who are hostile to the person of who Jesus is. There's people and churches abusing the authority of Scripture for their own selfish gain. There's sickness and disease. As Romans 8 says, the creation groans, waiting eagerly for all things to be made new and the evil wiped away. So verses 13 and 14 are true, friends. We can see the salvation of the Lord. He will wipe the enemy and the evil away. We will never see it again. He will fight for us. And he began that final work of the cross and he'll finish it when Jesus returns. It's important to note the Lord deals with ex these external threats, both in the real time of our experience and in the ultimate time of the return of Jesus. The Old Testament is littered with stories of the Lord hearing the cries of the people and doing something about it. We heard last week from Ryan in Genesis 18 and 19, where God hears the cries in Sodom and Gomorrah and does something about it. We see God deliver Israel from David and the Philistines. We see the same littering of stories in the New Testament. The early church sees its persecution answered when Saul, the persecutor of persecutors, is converted to Paul by a direct work of Jesus the Lord. Jesus performs miracles when he's on the earth in part to deal with people's practical external threats. There are real external threats around us there was a real external threat facing Israel, and the Lord powerfully saved them from that external threat. And the Lord will finally annihilate all of those external threats we face when Jesus returns. So something you all should know is that verse 14 has been a favorite of mine for many years. Top three verses, probably, in all the Bible for me. So I walked into my preparation for this sermon thinking 14 was the linchpin of the whole story, that I was going to preach to you the main point that the Lord will fight for you. He'll do the work, and we are to be silent actively and wait on him to work. 
I use that in my life all the time. And it's true. But the text wants to say something different than that. So look at verse 10 with me, where it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Now I want you to jump down to the bottom of the chapter. We're going to look at verses 30 and 31. Halfway through verse 30, And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So, that so tells us we're going to see the result of Israel seeing the great power that the Lord used. The people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. You see the inversion. First, Israel saw the armies of Pharaoh and they feared greatly. Then, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore and the great power the Lord used, and they feared the Lord and believed. We're prone to read this story and think the central conflict is the Egyptians' threat to Israel. But the text tells us the central conflict is Israel fearing the armies of Pharaoh instead of fearing God. Some of you have caught the cognitive dissonance of verse 15. Let's look back there and see the heart the Lord has for us. So after Moses gives us, in verses 13 and 14, what sounds like a great response to Israel's cry, God corrects him. Reading verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. So before I worked on this sermon, I had never realized that was a correction. On the surface, Moses' response seems to be quite correct and really good. I don't think I would have come up with anywhere close to it. So I wrestled with this for a while, but we get a clue back in chapter 13. It tells us that when Israel set out on this journey through the wilderness, right before we started reading, that they did it equipped for battle, even though the Lord said he was going to avoid war. And that stand firm language that Moses uses is, is meant to remind us the, of the digging of your heels into the ground before the battle so that you can hold your position. So when Moses says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, he thinks God is going to help Israel fight the Egyptians. He thinks that's how it's going to go, that this battle is going to break out and it's going to be Egypt versus Israel and Israel will win. Moses and Israel are afraid of the Egyptians. They don't fear the Lord or trust him to be able to move forward. They're dressed for battle already, and they think they need to turn back and face the enemy themselves, and the Lord will help them on their mission. So God tells them to go forward, and he does it through his servant Moses. God parts the Red Sea so that they can end up on the other side, fearing and believing in the Lord and in his servant. No first sermon would be complete without a Lord of the Rings reference. So in the Lord of the Rings, Frodo sets off to take the ring to Mordor to destroy it. And he and most of the party assume that the greatest threat is an external one. Sauron, the orcs, and any of the other dangers that they'll encounter along the way. 
But as he stands there in Mordor, just before he drops the ring in the fire to be destroyed forever, he realizes that he was his own greatest threat. We think our greatest enemy is the sin and death around us. The Lord knows our greatest enemy is the sin within us to fear anything else more than him. So God works his powerful salvation so that our internal threat would also be eliminated and we would fear and believe in him rightly, that our hearts would be set on him. The Lord longs for your heart to be set rightly on him. He destroyed the Egyptians to set the hearts of the Israelites rightly on him, and he sent his own son to die on the cross to destroy sin and death to set your heart rightly on him. So second question, how does the Lord save us? Well, he saves us utterly, seeably, and through his servant. So first, the Lord saves us utterly. Looking at verses 21 and 22, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Just pause for a moment and consider the scale of what's happening. From earlier in Exodus, we know that there are 600,000 men making up Israel at this point. So conservatively, we'll say that there's one woman and one child for every man. There's probably more, but conservatively. Um, I was in a crowd of 1.8 million people once. Uh, I went to President Obama's inauguration in two, 2008, and that's, I, turns out that's how big the crowd was. Had no idea. It was a surreal experience to be surrounded by a literal sea of people. The entire National Mall from the Capitol building all the way to the Lincoln Memorial was wall-to-wall -wall people. And if you're not familiar with the layout of the National Mall, imagine 20 NFL stadiums worth of people standing in a half-mile-wide, two-mile-long block. This mass of two million people needs to cross the Red Sea. The skinniest it ever gets is 12 miles, and at some point, they would have to hit a depth of 230 feet. So that's about a 20-story building. So now imagine you're in a crowd of two million people walking on the dry sea floor with two walls of water on either side of you towering above your head at 20 stories high while you walk across through the night. The Lord has utter power. So we'll look down at verse 24. And in the morning, watch the Lord. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. So the Lord looks down and throws all of Egypt's entire army into a panic. He has utter power. Verses 27 and 28. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, 
the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. The Lord's utterly, he doesn't save halfway either. Not even one survived among them. There are no more Egyptians to deal with. There are none of the Israelites left behind in crossing the sea. His defeat of the enemy is total and complete because he has utter power. Jesus is crucified in the tomb for three days and then resurrects from the grave, having conquered sin and death. Colossians says, when he, that is Jesus, has disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a display of them in public, triumphing over them by it. The Lord has utter power. It is so important to us that the Lord saves us thoroughly, completely, and utterly. We've already seen he longs for us to be set rightly to him. That desire is in his heart. But what if he didn't have utter power? He wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. Fearing him wouldn't help us because he wouldn't be the final authority. But he does save us with his utter power. More than that, verse 31 tells us the reason he saves us with utter power is so our hearts would be set rightly to fear and believe in him and his servant. So the Lord saves us utterly. Second, the Lord saves us seeably. This story is a spectacle. We get a play-by-play of what happens in visual detail. We see the image of Israel walking across dry ground with a wall of the sea on their right and their left twice. In verse 31, we're told Israel saw the great power that the Lord used. And seeing is what is the verb used to actually cause them to fear rightly in the Lord. Remember, this is in direct contrast to the beginning in verse 10, when they lift up their eyes and see the Egyptians and fear them instead. The Lord wants us to see his salvation. Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection so they can see him. 1 John 3 tells us that when we see him, the Lord, just as he is, that we will be made like him. 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that as we behold or see the glory of the Lord, we are transformed. What the Lord does to save us isn't abstract. It's real, and we can see it. Lastly, the Lord saves us through his servant. So the word hand gets used as a noun in this passage six times. The first two are where God tells Moses to lift up his hand to part the waters, and then Moses it says Moses reaches out his hand to actually do it. The next two are when God tells Moses to lift up his hand and bring the water back over the Egyptians. And then verse 27, where it actually happens. And then we're told that in verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And finally, looking at verse 31 and the word power. So that word power in Hebrew, it's the same word for hand that's used throughout the rest of this chapter. So power is a perfectly fine translation for 
that word in this context. It's not wrong. As a raised hand in this linguistic context is synonymous with power. But let's read that verse translated literally. Israel saw the great hand that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So whose hand was doing something during the events of the story? Well, it was Moses' hand, the servant's hand. The text is trying to make the claim to us that the Lord's hand and the servant's hand are one and the same. That his servant acts to save us from our real external threat and wins our fears over to him. Saving us from our internal threat, he is acting. That's why verse 31 goes on to say, they so that they believe in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, we're not meant to read this passage on this side of the cross and find ourselves believing in the Lord's servant Moses. We're meant to see the typology of the story as it maps onto the story of Jesus and his crucifixion. So in John's gospel, just after Jesus stops to teach his disciple the new meal of communion they're going to do throughout all their generations, Jesus is betrayed and the external enemy of Rome comes to take Jesus away. Peter tries to fight the enemy, pulling out his sword, just like Moses tells the people to stand firm, get ready to fight. Jesus, the servant of the father, tells Peter not to fight, but that he must go forward following the plan already laid out for him. Jesus, the servant, is then killed on the cross. He goes down to deal with the enemy, just like the Lord looked down on the Egyptians, throwing them into confusion, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And finally, Jesus rises back up from the ground, just like Israel rises up out of the sea and by his resurrection finally feels, seals the fate of death, just like verse 28, where the waters returned and covered them, not one of them remained. Then Israel sees the bodies of the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Just the same but better, the disciples see no dead body of Jesus in the tomb. Clear, undeniable demonstrations of God's victory over death. Just like we're prone to think the story of crossing the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh is merely about Israel being saved from their oppression, we're prone to think that Jesus dying on the cross is merely about the defeat of the devil and the washing of our sins. Those things are true. They do happen. They matter. They're a part of the story, and we should celebrate them. But ultimately, the Lord is after our hearts. So he's worked utterly to accomplish these things for us, seeably, so that we would fear and believe in him and Jesus Christ. So that we would behold the good news of his death and resurrection with the eyes of our hearts and be transformed in God, into God's glorious people who fear him and believe in Jesus more and more. So as we come to the table and behold the mighty work that Jesus did on the cross to set our hearts to him.